Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about sinister strolls, caustic candy, and spooky cemeteries. All of tonight's tales are centered around the spookiest of seasons, because although it may be the middle of April, and Halloween might be more than 200 days away, but it's never a bad time to spring some Samhain on lovers of the macabre and eerie. So I say, let the haunts begin! I'm Otis Jiry, host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its fifth season, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts can be found. And tonight, I'll be filling in for regular host, my good friend Steve Tabor. Come along, won't you, as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life our voice talents, Christopher Keegan, Jesse Brown, and Heather Thomas. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our Theater of the Minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights. Turn on the dark. <laughs> our first tale tonight is written by Alexander McHugh and voiced by Christopher Keegan. In it, we travel across the pond, where a gentleman who has just moved to an unfamiliar area in London comes across a young girl dressed for trick-or-treating 
seemingly in the middle of nowhere and behaving strangely. Who or what is she? And what can our hapless protagonist do to help her? Or is he the one about to need help himself? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you a walk home on Halloween. I had just moved to my current flat in Rains Park, southwest London, and was still fairly unfamiliar with the area. Now my current bosses and supervisors know that I'm still fighting a losing battle with the underwhelming reliability of southwest trains, and as a result have less than reliable timekeeping when it comes to arriving at work on time. While some people are more aware that the trains keep me from arriving at work on time, not many of you are aware of the troubles I have returning home. That is to say, I have many a time found myself stuck at Clapham Junction, with no train to take me back to Rains Park. In these circumstances, I have to take a bus to Wimbledon Common and walk the remaining three miles on foot. It's actually quite a pleasant walk. London doesn't have many hills. If I walk along the Ridgeway, you can actually occasionally get a nice view. True, it is of Croydon, but a nice view nonetheless. Now, to call Wimbledon Village a privileged area would be an understatement. The driveways are home to sports cars and luxury utility vehicles, so you can imagine I have very uneventful walks home. I rarely see anyone on the trip, apart from the odd older couple, perhaps walking home after a late dinner party, or, or even a person walking their dog. The neighbourhood is quiet, and it gets to bed early. And that night was just like the others, initially. I'd gotten off the bus at the War Memorial, walked through the village centre and turned onto the Ridgeway. My phone's batteries had died somewhere between Wandsworth and Southfields, so I had to do the walk without music, and this always makes the walk seem longer. My usual practice was to walk along and look at the houses, try and guess what the people that lived in the houses would be like. Fast car, business types, SUV, toys still in the front yard, larger family, that kind of thing. I was playing my game, and I decided to have a cigarette, so I stopped. I was searching for my lighter and looking around when I noticed that I'd not been the only one on the street. Now this was unusual, but hardly alarming. What was strange, however, was that the person wasn't the sort I'd grown used to seeing. It was a young lady, as she appeared to be drunk or tired, perhaps. I lit my cigarette and paused for a second. Just a quick second to judge if she would be capable of making it home by herself, or perhaps she would need me to see if I could call someone for her. It was at this point I realised that she was crying. I started to walk over to her to make sure she was alright. She stopped walking immediately, frozen. I noticed she was in some sort of Halloween costume, a schoolgirl in fact. And as I got closer, I began to realize that she was in fact around the age of 15 or 16. She was deathly white. Her makeup must have been professionally done, or she'd spent an incredibly long time preparing it. I began to decide that perhaps her friends had made fun of her for her costume, and she'd run off from whatever party she'd been at, drunk and upset. I began to start feeling a bit unnerved, 
and I noticed that she was staring directly at me as I approached. I can assure you that in a city the size of London, we have an unspoken rule of avoiding eye contact with strangers at all costs. It was at this point I assumed she was under the influence of something other than alcohol, and I decided to be a bit more cautious. I stopped about four or five feet away, and I spoke to her. Are you okay? You seem a little upset. Um, are you in any sort of trouble? Nothing from her apart from that stare. Have you had a little bit too much to drink? Maybe some smoke? Yeah, right. I know hallucinogens when I see them. Still nothing. Do you need a taxi home? Do you remember where you live? At this, the girl began to cry, but this time she was absolutely wailing. I could feel her raw sense of despair. I actually flinched at the sound. It was positively unbearable. She was dancing on the border of hysterics, perhaps even putting one foot over the line to see what would happen. I was stunned. I wanted to console her and run in equal measures. I wanted to comfort her and chastise her at the same time. All I managed was a weak... Why are you crying? She must have heard me somehow because she began to draw herself back from the edge of what can only be described as a complete breakdown. She was still heaving and sobbing, but once again she brought her eyes up into mine and said very softly, Because you're going to die. Now, I've been unfortunate enough to witness death firsthand on more than one occasion. Suffice it to say, these events had always left me with a lot to think about, and I, in fact, had come to terms with my own mortality quite early on in life. It struck me that perhaps, like too many of us had, this young lady had someone quite close to her die recently. Perhaps she was going through the same dark realizations that follow being in the company of death. The same thoughts that can keep children up at night, and the pews full at church. I wanted to let her know that everything would be fine and that death was simply a part of life. All I managed, however, was a slightly incredulous... Uh, I know. At this, she seemed slightly taken aback, almost angry. She responded, You are going to die, and he is going to kill you. Alarms went off in my head. I began to feel more than a little threatened. I decided right then and there that talking this girl down from whatever bad high she was on was no longer my responsibility. Had not the venerable Hunter S. Thompson himself warned us of the dangers of underestimating the ability of a drug to take control of a person. Good luck, I said, and with that turned and began to walk away. After about five steps, I quickly looked back to see her still standing there. She put her head down and began to audibly sob again. I quickened my pace, and shortly had walked along a natural bend in the road, leaving her out of sight. I'd been left agitated. I remember putting my headphones back in my ears and trying to listen to music from my phone, only to remember it was out of power still. I was still two miles away from home, but at this pace I was walking, I was confident that I would cover the ground in less than 20 minutes. No less than two minutes later, 
was when I first heard the shouting. It was a man's voice, and layered within it was an excruciating sense of malice and rage. I'm coming for you, the man screamed. I couldn't quite place where the voice had come from, but it seemed as though he was at some distance behind me on the same road, possibly from where the girl had been. I immediately realized that I was to be the victim of some sort of Halloween prank. I didn't, however, slow down. I imagined that this was the point when I was supposed to get scared and begin to run, and I was determined not to play along. Again the man yelled, yet this time it seemed to come from significantly closer. I hate you, he bellowed. Now the voice had seemed to come from somewhere quite close behind me. That is to say, at that volume I would have expected to have seen the man addressing me, but I was still very much alone on the street. I was also walking quite fast, so the person yelling at me must have run quite fast too, yet I had not heard any other footsteps. There was obviously more than one prankster, and they'd hidden along points on the street. I quickly decided to be rather a poor sport, and cut off the main road, down Thornton Road at the Swan Pub. I hate to admit that their practical joke had gotten the better of me, and I did not want to see what they had in store for me next. I'd made it to the front of the second house on the street, when the terrible voice shouted at me again, You are going to die! This time the voice seemed to have come from the entrance of the street less than thirty yards away. Perhaps one last chance at scaring me before I disappeared into the darker side streets. Since these streets were darker, I decided that I would lose no pride in starting to jog down the hill. I knew it was all probably fun and games, but the ferocity of the shouting left me worried that I could, in fact, be dealing with a real maniac. True, it would have been interesting to be a part of the most elaborate mugging I'd ever heard of, but that voice just left me with an impression of true hatred. I didn't want to meet the person, or people rather, that could mimic and channel such malignant feelings at will. I'd made it to the curve where Thornton Road becomes King Avenue, when all of a sudden I heard someone screaming, I will kill you! They shouted. This time the voice, the same voice that had yelled, seemed to be directly to my right. He must have been hidden behind the fence, or some house, or perhaps even hidden within the house. I'd obviously walked right into their trap. I broke into a sprint at this point. Pride be damned! I began to run quite fast, and then faster straight downhill. At this point, I was actually beginning to panic. My mind was playing terrible tricks on me. It seemed as though the voice was all around me, constantly yelling, constantly screaming. Up ahead was the main road. Warple Road to be precise, and it was well lit, and it was busy. I could hail a cab and be home in minutes, but the voices, the intensity of their rage, it was inescapable. I hate you, they screamed, you coward, die, die, die. Every second, all around me, the adrenaline must have been heightening my every sense. I admit I was scared and it seemed as though for some reason that terrible voice was booming off every surface on the street. I felt as though I was simultaneously running away and into that mad rage. 
The words felt like gusts of a terrible hot wind pushing its venomous anger at me. I couldn't take it anymore. The voice seemed to make me share that same intense anger. I thought to myself, am I the one shouting? I felt like a victim. I wanted to kill the people that were playing this mad trick on me. I felt hated. Time to die, coward, they screamed. I hate you. I decided I had to give up. In one quick movement, I decided I would stop running as fast as I could and have a cigarette and wait for these people to show themselves. Come what may, I needed answers and a smoke. I quickly stopped my run and span around. Then a car beeped as it raced past exactly where I would have run to had I not stopped that exact moment. I felt its air pocket ruffle the back of my hair as it sped past. In my blind panic, I'd run past the sidewalk of the main road and onto the actual road. I had avoided running blindly into the road and being run down by inches. I looked up at the road I'd come from. Darkness. Silence. Who'd ever been up there was now gone. I lit my cigarette and took a few moments to calm down. Smoking had saved my life that day, friends. I went home after that. Nothing more happened to me. But, as I was standing there trying to calm down, working through the panic and the adrenaline, I seemed to remember I felt like I heard a soft whisper, perhaps just my imagination. I thought I heard a girl's voice saying, not such a coward after all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Went, And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoyed A Walk Home on Halloween, as written by Alexander McHugh and performed by Christopher Keegan. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you. 
written by an author who prefers to go by the moniker The Odd Cat Lady, and it's voiced by Jesse Brown. In it, a group of friends visits what is widely regarded as one of the most awful haunted attractions they've ever laid eyes upon. But as is the case with many things, this house of horrors is more than meets the eyes. And once you get a taste of its true terror, you won't be able to stop yourself from having another bite. <laughs> Without further ado, I present to you the worst haunted house. You know you're in for a treat when you can already see the props peeling off the walls before you even get in. Rick tried to push the foam sword back on the wall, only for it to flop back down the moment he let go. I snickered and elbowed him. Leave it alone, you're just making it worse, I said. It looks so... sad, though. Rick nudged it before he huffed and crossed his arms. This is so stupid. Shut up. It's either this, or we're stuck watching Nightmare Before Christmas on repeat with my little sister, I said. Susan blinked owlishly. But I like Nightmare Before Christmas, she said. We all bust out laughing at that as the line slowly trudged forward. This was the only haunted house within driving distance of our houses, and it left a lot to be desired. But ever since we were freshmen, we'd pay the ridiculously high fee of seven bucks a person to go on through anyway. When the death house is your only option on Halloween, you're taking that option. Better a shitty scare than no scare at all. The five of us walked up to the bored-looking girl in a cheap vampire costume standing at the front. Five for the house, I said, pushing forward our tickets. The girl looked up and popped her bubblegum. Rule change, only four at a time, she said. You've got to be kidding me. We all groaned and Rick threw up his arms. Come on, it's just one more person. We've always gone together, he complained. The girl shrugged. Not my problem. One of you can go with the next group. God, I hated people who couldn't bend a rule. And I could already hear the muttering of the annoyed people behind us. Fine, fine, uh... Who wants to wait? I asked. I was already looking at Rick. He was the oldest other than me, and he could learn a lesson about patience. A soft voice cleared her throat. Um... Rachel smiled and waved her hand. I'll wait a few more minutes. It's okay, I'll just walk extra fast to catch up. I must have looked flabbergasted. Rachel, you cried last year when the clown jumped at you. What's the sudden change? I asked. I was already feeling hesitant. Rachel was the youngest of us and faint-hearted when it came to fear. I didn't cry, she pouted before sighing. Really, I'm fine. Go, go. She shooed us on. I chewed my bottom lip before I shrugged. All right, hurry up and try to catch up. And remember, the actors are not allowed to touch you. And if they do, feel free to clock them. Rachel laughed and after our tickets were handed in, the rest of us walked in. I caught a glimpse of Rachel talking with a vampire chick, who seemed to have the reaction anyone had around Rachel. Melt because of cute. Even tonight, she was dressed as a princess with a bright pink dress and a crooked rhinestone tiara. 
The rest of us had gone as horror icons. I was Freddy Krueger, Susan was Carrie, Rick was Jason Voorhees, and Grant was Jeff the Killer. I nearly kicked his ass because he had lied and said he was going to be Leatherface, not some shitty creepypasta character. Most of us had ditched our masks and left them in the car. I, for one, wasn't going to wear that sticky rubber nightmare all night. Rick was the only one who kept his, and it was hanging off his belt at the moment. Not Rachel, though. She wanted to be cute and nothing could talk her out of it. I bust out laughing as a cannibal leaped out from the cheap fake vines and moss, howling and grasping at our faces. Hey man, brush your teeth, I said, laughing again when the cannibal flipped me the bird. You're so rude, Susan tut-tutted. It's not my fault they all suck. You can literally see the guy's chainsaw poking out of the cage up ahead. It's not exactly a jump scare when you know it's coming. It's not the actor's fault, not really. The death house has been set up poorly year after year, and whoever they dragged into acting had to make do with crap props, cramped spaces, and horrible makeup. It didn't mean I didn't get a good laugh out of scaring them. I dragged my fake claws along a prison wall, snickering quietly as I heard the mad prisoner up ahead drop character and yelp. You sleep tight tonight, I cackled, waving menacingly at the now flustered actor who looked like he'd spilled ketchup all over his fake beard and tacky orange jumpsuit. How are these guys still in business? Nightmare Before Christmas is sounding better by the second, Rick said, fake lunging at more of the mad prisoners and watching them flinch. Susan nodded, and my blood's getting itchy, she complained, scratching at her face. We'll wash it off when we get out. I instinctively looked back, expecting to see a bright pink dress at any moment. Jesus, where the hell is Rachel? She might not go in, Grant said quietly enough that we had to strain our ears to hear him. I should have stayed back with her. She's probably frozen in fear. She's not a baby anymore. Susan said, nearly tripping over some plastic chains. She'll be fine. Race you to the Black Lagoon with some zombie hillbillies. She took off running, hoisting her dress up past her knees to avoid falling on her face. No fair, you got a head start, Rick whined, nearly dropping his hockey mask on the ground as he scrambled to catch up. I rolled my eyes and looked at Grant. Should we wait a bit longer and see if Rachel catches up? I asked. Grant thought for a second, biting his lip. Nah, we're not supposed to stop anyway. Rachel's probably buddied up with the group behind us. The ones that look like famous dead people as zombies. Yeah, was one of them undead David Bowie? Because not fucking cool. We took off after Rick and Susan, laughing at the terrible light effects and poor setup. One of the actors saw Susan and Rick bolting towards him and he ended up running away at the sight of Carrie and Jason coming at him full speed. The end didn't come fast enough, but a smile was on my face the whole time. Sure, it was a shitty haunted house, but it was our haunted house, you know? I swore as I tripped over a mannequin meant to look like a corpse, nearly landing on my face. Jesus Christ, wait up, Rick! I said as I scrambled back to my feet. A hand wrapped around my ankle and I nearly pissed myself. I slowly turned my head around. The corpse grinned maniacally back. We're all dead. We didn't make it out, he cackled. I screamed and nearly kicked the guy in the face, getting to my feet. No fair, you're not supposed to touch the people going through the house, I complained. 
You also kicked me in the ribs, dude. That was fair. The guy flopped back down and resumed being dead. I limped down the rest of the hallway, not even reacting when another actor wearing a tattered yellow and red cape waved at me. Happy Halloween. Would you like a treat? He said. Fucking pass. I grumbled as I pushed open the exit door and walked out to meet my friends. Thanks for leaving me behind. I nearly got eaten by a zombie. Grant snickered. The guy on the floor? Oh man, he actually got me. I nearly lost my shit. He said. Susan shivered as she giggled. I'm so cold. Let's get back to the fairground so we can chill by a bonfire and have some hot cider. She said. I held up a hand. Wait, what about Rachel? Did she leave yet? All of us looked around, Grant standing on his tippy toes to catch a glimpse of that princess dress. Nothing, he said, lowering back down. She's probably still inside. Or she never went in at all, Rick sighed. Wait here, I'll check by the entrance. Here, have my jacket. Rick pulled off his coat and draped it over Susan's shoulders. I'll be back in a sec. He took off running. I plopped down on the ground and caught my breath. Jesus Christ. For once I actually got got in the death house, I mumbled. He got me and Rick too. I think Rick nearly cried, Susan said, setting a hand on my shoulder. Grant nodded. For once we get a good actor and he's at the very end. He should go pro. I saw Rick jogging back. Hey Rick, did Rachel head back for Coco? I asked getting back to my feet. Rick came to a stop when I saw how unsettled he was. Rachel actually went by herself three minutes after us. Vampire chick said she seemed pretty confident. You don't think you fainted, do you? He asked. I looked back at the door, my stomach twisting. I'm going back in, I said, walking up to the door. You know if you're caught going back this way, you'll get us all tossed out of the carnival, Susan said, trying to grab my arm. I shook her off. And if Rachel fainted, she might have hit her head. Or she's having a panic attack and can't move because some stupid actor actually grabbed her. I said. I reached for the doorknob. The door slammed open and nearly hit me across the face. There stood Rachel. A little paler, and her eyes were a little red with tears. But she was there. Then she grinned and held up a round, bright red lollipop. Trick or treat! Did you guys get the candy from the guy in the cape? She asked. No, I told him to fuck off. Wait, he was seriously giving out candy? Oh man, I missed that? I groaned and my shoulders sagged. How much candy did you get? Rachel unwrapped her treat and popped it in her mouth. Just this, but he had a whole bag full. All homemade and a huge variety. Chocolates, suckers, jawbreakers. You seriously didn't get any? Susan looked sheepish. I thought he was joking. Oh man, that looks yum. Rachel pulled the lollipop free of her lips. It is. Oh man, this is way better than the dum-dums you get at the bank. She put it back in her mouth. Come on, I want a hot drink and to sit by the fire. She ran on ahead, grinning from ear to ear. My heart had finally slowed down and I shook my head. I can never read that girl, I said. Grant shrugged. I guess she really did grow up from last year. Come on, last one there buys Coco. He took off after Rachel. I shook my head but gave chase. My paycheck was still a few days out and I was borderline broke already. Susan was the last one of the fire pit and was now carrying her heels. 
Oh, my feet hurt, she whined. Rachel giggled hysterically. The candy had now smeared her lips scarlet. Maybe next year don't wear a costume with heels? She hiked up her skirt and showed off her dirty tennis shoes. I'm comfy and I still look like a princess. Mostly, I said, reaching up and readjusting her crown. But that's going to fall off if you're not careful. And you're absolutely going to choke if you run around with a sucker in your mouth. Rachel shook her head. Nah, it's already mostly gone, see? She pulled it out of her mouth, a trail of crimson saliva connecting her lips to the stick for a second before the spit strand flopped back down on her chin. Sure enough, the candy had already mostly dissolved, leaving only a small misshapen orb left. Huh. I took the stick to get a better look. I thought they were supposed to last longer than this. Like he said, they were homemade. Maybe they taste better but don't last as long. And give me that back. Rachel snatched it back and licked it a few times. So tasty. She whined before she wiped her mouth off. I want another one, but I don't have the money to go through the death house again. Neither do I. I just have money for maybe two cups of cocoa. Rachel stood on tiptoe and kissed me on the cheek. Then buy me a cup, pretty please? She said, her eyes wide and pleading. I sputtered for a few brief moments. Grant's jaw dropped and I heard Susan quietly squealing behind me. Uh, sure. Susan? You lost the race. Come with me for a second? My voice sounded more like a 12-year-old going through puberty at the moment, but I didn't care. I speed walked away from my friends as casually as I could. Did that just happen? I asked, trying to keep my voice quiet. Susan grinned. It totally did. Oh my gosh, finally! I've been waiting for you two to get together for forever! She said, practically dancing with every step she took. Oh my god, Susan. I groaned and dragged my hand down my face. I don't even know if I like her like that. She's still in high school. We graduated last year. She's graduating this year, you weirdo? Susan smacked my back as she skipped up to the booth. Okay, two ciders, one cocoa. And this guy has to get a cocoa for himself and his girlfriend. I groaned. Please do not call Rachel my... A loud scream cut me off. Not one from the death house either, although you'd never hear screams from there in the first place. This one came from the fire pit behind us. I spun around and saw Rick lying on the ground. For a second I thought that Rachel was shaking him, trying to wake him up while Grant was trying to get closer. Then I realized that Grant was trying to pull Rachel off of him as she gnawed at Rick's throat. Get off of him, Rachel! Get off of him! Rachel! Help! Somebody help! Grant managed to lift Rachel off of him. The girl hissing and spitting like a wild animal. She threw her weight backwards, Grant falling back into the open flames. He howled as he rolled away, his white hoodie catching like a match. For a second, Rachel looked back at me, blood dripping down her mouth and her chest. She cocked her head to the side before she sped off running for the nearby woods. Susan screamed. She ran to Rick's side and ripped off the jacket he'd given her to wear, pressing it against his neck. Grant was putting himself out. I could hear him moaning in pain. I ran after Rachel into the woods. I tripped over brambles and ripped open my jeans on thorns, nearly falling on my face twice as I looked for glimpses of my friend. I caught sight of that bright pink dress on occasion, but it blinked out of existence the moment I saw it. 
I came to a stop, my lungs burning as I attempted to take a breath. I wheezed before I looked up. Where's Rachel? Where the fuck is... I was now eye to eye with the actor wearing the yellow and red cape. I couldn't even scream. He bent down to look me in the face. Was he this tall when I saw him in the death house? His skin wasn't pale from makeup, although I thought that was the only way you could look that white without being dead. He grinned literally ear to ear, revealing a mouthful of yellow broken fangs. He slowly reached into his cape and pulled out a sack, opening it up for me to look inside. Candy. So much candy. All in homemade packaging. Tied with ribbons and each piece looking far more delectable than anything else you'd get on Halloween night. Do you want a treat, David? I reached into the bag and plucked out another lollipop. This one was a dark green with a solid core that may have been chocolate or some sort of gummy. I swallowed before I put it back. I... No, I don't want a fucking treat. Where's Rachel? I backed away, unable to look at this freak's face any longer. Here. I looked behind me to see Rachel. She'd shed her pink dress and was only in a white slip now, but she'd still had the costume crown on her head. She smiled, a handful of teeth falling out of her mouth. You wouldn't see a space among all the new sharp ones protruding from her gums. Go home, David, please, she said. I shook my head. No, I couldn't leave Rachel, not now. Not with this, this thing. She took my hand and gently squeezed it. Fingernails had been exchanged with claws. They sliced through the meat of my palm like butter. Please, David, go home, she said, an odd sadness in her eyes that didn't match her macabre grin. And crying like a baby, I did. I ran all the way home. I didn't even go back to the festival, even though I could hear screams behind me. The festival was going to hell, but I didn't care. I went home. The neighborhood is quiet, but I can see police cars slowly patrolling the streets. There will be no trick-or-treating this year. Someone already came by the house and told my family not to take candy from anyone we didn't know, especially if this candy was homemade or torn wrappers. How many people took candy from that man in the yellow and red cape tonight? I hope you enjoyed The Worst Haunted House, as written by the Odd Cat Lady and performed by Jesse Brown. Up next, we've one final fearsome fable for you. Written by an author who goes by the name The Vespers Bell, and it's voiced by Heather Thomas. In it, a young woman with a penchant for the paranormal sets her sights on a quiet evening, alone, in a nearby cemetery. She soon discovers, however, that she's not the only person with business in the graveyard, and her problems pale in comparison to those of her cryptic companions. Without further ado, I present to you Hallowed Ground.
I don't think there's anything more beautiful than a cemetery in the fall, though I love cemeteries no matter the season. There's normally an abundance of majestically tall trees, more than you typically find in a public park, but not so many that they obstruct your view, like in the woods. At the peak of autumn, you're treated to a panoramic vista of vibrantly colored foliage dangling from the branches and blanketing the ground, rustling in the wind and crunching underfoot. The gravestones themselves have an apothic allure to them, ruggedly cut slabs of polished slate or granite or marble, their dark bodies glistening ever so slightly in the dappled sunlight, meticulously arranged, row by row, in solemn respect to those they stand in memorial to. What I love the most, though, is the serenity, the tranquility, the quiet. Aside from the occasional funeral, they're often entirely empty of visitors, and virtually never have more than a few at a time. The memento mori of rotting corpses only six feet underground must sour most people on the otherwise gorgeous landscaping. Not me, though. I guess I'm something of a misanthropic loner to seek out solitude in the confines of a graveyard, but reminders of mortality don't bother me. It's comforting, if anything, that we set aside such charming sanctuaries for the dead. It was on the first day of last October that I came across a new cemetery, one I had never been to before, or even knew existed. I was taking a scenic route home along the countryside roads to admire the fall landscape when I spotted the weathered gravestones up ahead. Pleasantly surprised at my discovery, I turned in without a second thought. The corroded metal arch over the gates only read cemetery. If the sign had ever borne a name, those letters had long since rusted away. It wasn't a large cemetery, maybe a little over a hundred yards across by a couple hundred long, with a single looping gravel path, and so I parked my car and explored it on foot. I was immediately enthralled by its pristine silence. I couldn't hear even the most distant sign of human activity. The only noises were the calling of crows, the scampering of small animals, and the wind blowing through the trees. The towering oaks and maples that populated the graveyard were stunningly dressed in all their colors beneath the somber gray sky. But the gravestones themselves were a different story. None of them were recent, and most were so worn they couldn't even be read anymore. There were only two structures still standing upon the grounds, the dilapidated remains of a maintenance shed, and a small marble mausoleum, my entrance barred by an iron gate. I walked the entire length of the cemetery, searching for any sign of recent activity. Plant overgrowth was limited, but that looked more like the work of grazing wildlife than a groundskeeper, and I came to the conclusion that the place must be abandoned. I was ecstatic. A small, quaint, aged cemetery, all to myself. I came back a couple days later 
and reclined up against a large gravestone that I thought gave the best view, with a book in one hand and a pumpkin spice latte in the other. I wasn't usually so casual about my behavior in cemeteries, in case someone came across me and deemed it disrespectful, but after a brief web search on Ecosia yielded absolutely nothing about the cemetery, I was certain it was abandoned. If there's one thing people find creepier than cemeteries, it's abandoned, isolated, decaying cemeteries. I was quite confident that I wouldn't be bothered, and that the long-forgotten person beneath me would be grateful for any attention at all after such prolonged neglect. Once I had finished my drink in a couple of chapters of my book, I decided to get up and stretch my legs a bit. I nearly screamed out loud when I saw a man in a long black coat and wide-brimmed hat standing over a grave near the cemetery exit. In a more ordinary cemetery, his presence wouldn't have been much cause for concern, but I was so utterly convinced that this place had been abandoned for ages that it seemed next to impossible that he was just paying his respects. My mind immediately assumed the worst, that he had seen me come in here and hoped to take advantage of my isolated state. If I were to scream at the top of my lungs out here, would anyone else even hear it? I dropped back down behind the gravestone, waiting to see what he would do. He continued standing over the same grave, barely moving, and giving no indication that he even knew I was there. I pulled out my phone in the hopes of calling someone to pick me up, only to see that I had no reception. Not entirely unexpected, given the rural area I was in, but I still cursed my luck. Twenty minutes to half an hour went by, with no change, and I realized it was going to start getting dark soon. I decided it was better to walk past the sky in daylight than to risk being trapped with him in a graveyard at night. And it wasn't like I was completely defenseless either. Being a woman with a penchant for wandering by herself in lonely areas, I had made it a habit to carry a small can of mace on my person, and I had taken some basic self-defense classes. Gathering my things, with my mace concealed in the palm of my hand, I set off towards the exit, following the route that kept me the furthest from the stranger. I kept my gait steady, my breathing soft and level, and my gaze ever flicking back and forth between my car and the dark figure. At the sound of my footfalls drawing near, he listlessly lifted his head, gave a perfunctory nod, and, to my great relief, let me pass without incident. A few days went by before I went back to the cemetery. My encounter with the stranger had left me a bit spooked, but since he'd done nothing to actually threaten me, maybe his presence there had been innocent after all. All I knew was that the spot was far too beautiful and secluded to give up without a more tangible threat to my safety. I went out for another leisurely country drive that eventually took me back to the cemetery, and as soon as I pulled into the entrance, there he was again. Or possibly, there he was still. Since he was standing over the exact same grave, 
with his back to me. Part of me wanted to back up and get the hell out of there, but at that point I honestly was more curious than scared. If he had intended to do me harm, he could have done it the first time we were in the cemetery together. And it didn't really make any sense that he would be lurking out in the open to ambush me days later on the off chance that I would come back. So, what the hell was he doing then? And how did he get here? I didn't see any other vehicles around, though that had escaped my attention during our first encounter. Now that I wasn't cornered, he didn't look nearly as threatening as he had before. Instead, he seemed a forlorn, almost tragic figure standing over that grave. My curiosity was piqued, and I was resolved not to give up the cemetery. So I decided to speak with him, shooting off a text to an acquaintance as a minimal precaution, which didn't send immediately thanks to the poor reception, and palming my mace. I stepped out of my vehicle and approached him. As I got closer, I became more confident, as I could see that his coat added a lot of bulk to him, and that he was actually a rather frail man. He had sharp cheekbones over sunken cheeks, and darkly circled eyes. He was pale, but his skin also had an odd, almost silvery luster to it, if that makes sense. His hair was white, too white for someone who looked fifty at the oldest, but oddest of all were his eyes. They were this incredibly vibrant shade of green that stood out like two barrel gemstones in his silvery white face. It would be a shame to have to mace such beautiful eyes, I thought. Not that that would stop me. Uh, excuse me, sir. I squeaked out when I was a few feet away from him. He raised his head and turned it towards me, his face sternly melancholic, but otherwise friendly enough. I apologize if I'm intruding, but I saw you by this grave a few days ago. It's just, it's got me wondering, since all the graves in this place seem far too ancient for any living person to have ever known the people buried in them, so I was just curious as to what you were doing here. The man nodded understandingly, seemingly aware of the oddness of what he was doing. The person buried here is an ancestor of mine. Never knew them personally, but their deeds have been felt throughout my family for generations, and it's been our tradition to honor them for that, he said in a hoarse voice. I'm the last of my bloodline now, so the honor falls to me alone. I turned my gaze to the moss-covered grave, scrutinizing it as best as I could, but failed to discern any identifying features other than the outline of a cross. There was a single purple rose placed upon the ground, and several silver dollars placed along the base of the gravestone. What about you, miss? He asked. What brings you to this place? Oh, I, uh... I just like cemeteries, I admitted sheepishly. They're pretty and quiet. The man nodded 
with a slight smirk. Um, how did you get here? I asked. Did someone drop you off, or do you live nearby? The latter. Very much so. He admitted, pointing towards an enormous evergreen tree. Beneath its sagging branches was a tent, along with some plastic totes and canvas bags. Oh, you're squatting here? I asked as sympathetically as I could. I was secretly relieved since the situation was starting to make at least a little sense. A secluded place like this was a perfect place to squat, and his homelessness explained his emaciated frame, his poorly fitted coat, even his prematurely white hair. But we're miles from the nearest store. You don't walk all the way there and then haul supplies all the way back, do you? I have enough to last me till the end of the month, he replied. After that, it won't matter. I mulled over asking what he meant by that, but decided better of it. I was unsure of his mental state, especially since I could see no evidence that this rather humble grave belonged to some venerated ancestor. I deemed it best to just let him believe whatever he wanted. I slipped the mace back into my pocket and pulled out my coin purse. May I? I asked gesturing to the row of coins he had laid along the base of the gravestone. He nodded appreciatively, and I left a token payment to his ancestor, or him, for using their graveyard. Is it all right with you if I keep visiting? I really do like it here. It's not my cemetery, miss. Do as you please. He nodded. Thank you. I smiled. I headed back to my car for coffee when I paused, tempted to ask him his name. I couldn't do that though without offering mine in exchange, and as harmless as he now seemed, I still thought it best to not give him any compromising information about myself. I visited the cemetery often for the rest of October, the foliage growing more vibrant and beautiful as the month progressed. I bought some pumpkins from a roadside stand and spent an afternoon carving them into jack-o'-lanterns and scattered them across the grounds. I befriended the semi-feral barn cats that came there to hunt. I played in the pile of leaves like a little girl, pressed my favorite ones into a scrapbook, and just generally did whatever the hell I felt like. One day I examined each grave one by one, noting anything I found interesting. Angels and crosses could still be made out on some of the headstones, but the only legible words were generic phrases like gone too soon, beloved wife, husband, etc. And of course, may she, he, or they rest in peace. Not one gravestone still had a date or a name left on it. It struck me as strange, of course, but I honestly had no idea of what to make of it. Each time I entered the cemetery, I'd leave a few more coins by the ancestor's grave, as an offering. Sometimes the man would be standing there, but sometimes he'd be in or around his tent, 
other times he'd be walking around the rest of the graveyard. And on at least one occasion, I wasn't sure if he was there at all, though I have no idea where he would have gone. We acknowledged each other politely, but seldom spoke. We were both there because we wanted to be left alone, after all. I do realize that me going by myself to a cemetery with a possibly crazy homeless man might sound reckless, but after the first time we spoke, I just never got the impression he was dangerous. There was only one time he took issue with any of my activities, and that was when I tried to gain entry to the mausoleum. I was fiddling with the lock, thinking it was so old I could probably just break it, when I felt his cold hand grab my shoulder from behind. That's a private mausoleum, miss. Not open to the public, he said firmly. Leave it be. Looking back on it, I will say that he probably wasn't justified in putting his hand on me when the reprimand alone would have sufficed. But at the time, I just felt such an intense sensation of being caught doing something I wasn't supposed to that I squeaked out an apology and scurried off to examine the maintenance shed instead. The most interesting thing I found there was one of those old, non-motorized lawnmowers. On my next visit, I brought him a deli sandwich, partially as an apology for my attempt at grave robbing, and partially because I brought one for myself and didn't feel right eating it in front of a homeless person but also in the hopes of getting some information out of him. He accepted it politely, but not exactly gratefully. More like it was a pack of store-brand socks from a secret Santa. He didn't seem to care what he ate, or that he was underfed. He was sure he'd make it until the end of the month, and that was enough for him. So, how long have you been here already? I asked, between bites of my Reuben sandwich. Since I buried my father, he murmured. Buried him here? I asked in surprise. Wasn't enough left for a proper burial, but this is consecrated ground. So it was good enough, he said with a distant nod. I'm sure you did the best you could, I assured him. His vague, cryptic answers did make me a little uneasy, but I had developed a sense of camaraderie with my fellow graveyard enthusiast and decided to give him the benefit of the doubt, at least for the moment. So, how much do you know about this place? I haven't been able to find out anything about it. How old is it? Does it have a name? Why don't any of the tombstones have names or dates left? The man just shook his head. All lost to time. Most of us are forgotten in less than a hundred years after we pass. No sense in the stones keeping names, when those names won't mean anything to anyone, he claimed. I just nodded and finished my sandwich. I didn't necessarily disagree with the sentiment, but it hardly explained the condition of the gravestones. I briefly entertained the thought that maybe he had chipped off all the dates and names, but quickly dismissed the notion. 
none of the gravestones appeared vandalized, just old. I eventually settled on the theory that the headstones had been mass-produced, with the generic phrases pre-engraved, and any personal information being only cheaply and shallowly carved, explaining why it had all eroded away. It wasn't a perfect theory, but it was the best I could think of. During the last week of October, there was a heavy rainstorm. When it started to lighten, I tossed on my coat and drove out to the cemetery, eager for the smell of wet leaves on the cool, damp air in my beloved sanctuary. When I arrived, I saw that the grave where I had been leaving my offerings had been dug up. Baffled, I ran from my car to the open grave without even shutting the door behind me. To my horror, I beheld the man, muddied and barely conscious, lying at the bottom of the freshly dug four-foot hole. He had evidently decided to take advantage of the rain-softened earth to exhume the grave, but in his fragile half-starved state, the excursion and the chill of the rain had been too much for him. Without hesitation, I jumped into the grave, grabbed him from under the armpits and hoisted him up. What the hell were you thinking? I demanded, as I slung his body up onto the ground. I, I had to know for sure, he mumbled. That was the only lucid sentence I got out of him for a while. I dragged him back to his tent, cleaned him up, put him in a blanket, and got some water into him. As he recuperated, I started thinking about what exactly my obligations were. I had known he probably wasn't mentally well, but I'd also thought he was harmless. Just a creepy loner who liked hanging out in graveyards, like me. But clearly, whatever delusions he clung to had just caused him to nearly kill himself. If I didn't at least try to get him help, and he died, was I at fault for that? If I didn't get him help, then who would? But would his delusions even let him leave the cemetery peacefully? The thought of him being dragged out of here by cops to be locked up in some asylum was soul-crushing. There was also the more selfish concern about what would happen to the cemetery if I brought it to the attention of government officials. I had fallen so in love with it. I had seriously started considering buying a camper and squatting here myself. Thank you. I was roused from my contemplation by the shameful and apologetic murmur from my tentmate. You're lucky I came here when I did, dummy, I said, giving him a punitive slap across the knee. Otherwise, you'd just be another nameless corpse right now. What were you trying to do? Do you even know? It doesn't matter. He shook his head. I groaned and shoved a cup of dollar store instant ramen into his hand. Look, I can't stay here all night. Are you going to be okay by yourself? I asked. Yes, miss. I'll be fine. Thank you. He nodded. 
promise me you won't do any more digging or anything else that might make you keel over? I demanded. I promise, miss, he swore. I sighed and accepted that that would have to do. I do have one small favor to ask, miss. And what's that? I asked as I put my raincoat back on. Halloween's my last night here, he said. If it's not too much trouble, would you mind seeing me off? Now I, of course, wanted to know where the hell he thought he was going, but given his mental state, I figured it wouldn't actually do any good to ask. If Halloween was some sort of locus for his delusions, then it was probably best for him to not be alone. Well, it's not like I had any other plans, I acquiesced. Sure, I'll be here at dusk. I'll bring drinks and stuff. We'll have a little Halloween party. I always meant to go to one of those. Halloween night came, and I set out a bowl of fun-sized candy bars with a please-take-two note posted to it, and drove off to the cemetery. I'd brought chips, dip, whiskey, and ginger ale coolers, a sandwich platter, Halloween candy, my Bluetooth speaker and a downloaded Halloween playlist that mostly had covers of This is Halloween, Monster Mash, and Spooky Scary Skeletons. Maybe not the wildest evening, but it was literally the first party I'd ever thrown. So cut me some slack. When I pulled into the cemetery, I saw that he had placed a trash can in the center and started a bonfire, and surrounded it with my jack-o'-lanterns. I was a little concerned about the safety of this, and that it might attract attention, but it did look amazing, and the night was cold enough that the warmth of the blaze would make the party much more enjoyable. This looks awesome, I cried as I got out of my car and donned my kitty mask, putting out the spread on my car's hood. All I did was put some leaves in a trash can and light a match. You're the one who took the time to carve the pumpkins, he said humbly, perched upon a headstone and staring into the fire. Yeah, I'm a real Michelangelo with gourds, I said sarcastically, handing him a fox mask. This time, you're not leaving me hanging. Tonight, you're going to eat the food I brought, and you're going to enjoy it. You're my only guest, and I will not have you spoiling the evening for everyone else. Yes, ma'am, he chuckled, helping himself to the sandwich platter. I pulled out my phone, hit play on my music app, and started dancing to Jonathan Young's cover of the Ghostbusters theme song. Normally, I'm pretty self-conscious at social gatherings, to the point that I avoid them as much as I can without being rude. But since the only other person there was even more reserved than I was, I was able to cut loose a bit. I danced around the fire, I sang, I drank, I feasted, and just generally made merry. It was the most fun I'd ever had at a party. A couple hours in and I was taking a breather, leaning up against my car and monologuing to the man about nothing in particular, 
when a strong gust of wind picked up and blew out the fire in the trash bin. I was taken aback, especially since all the jack-o'-lanterns stayed lit. The cold set in immediately. It was so cold that I could see my breath and frost forming on the ground. In the sparse candlelight, I could see that the man was roused from his normal melancholy. He craned his neck forward, and as I followed his gaze, I saw pale blue flames appear, one at a time, hovering in mid-air over each grave. Miss, stay inside the ring of jack-o'-lanterns and you'll be safe, he said as he quite deliberately stepped outside the ring. They don't want you anyway. Your offerings have been more than sufficient. I'm the one who owes them a debt. Wait. What are you doing? I whispered. I told you. Tonight is my last night here. He answered. The wind picked up again, howling like a wild dog. And yet the seemingly weightless apparitions remained exactly where they were. What are those things? I asked, spinning around frantically at the surreal siege of fool's fire. Willow the wisps, he said solemnly. Spirits who have been dead so long, they no longer remember their human lives, and thus cannot summon human form. They appear here every All Hallows' Eve, when the veil between the Elder World and ours is weakest. You've seen these things before? I asked, bewildered at both the supernatural spectacle and his mundane reaction to it. So they're not dangerous? No, they are but the jack-o'-lanterns are effective wards against them, he assured me. The wisps started to move now, very gently and heedless of the wind, slowly bobbing towards me and the man. Well, get in here then. What are you doing? He hung his head and let out a long sigh of resignation. I broke my promise to you, he confessed. I finished digging up my ancestor, though I paced myself a little more this time. It was exactly what I was told it was. An immaculate corpse. Incorruptible. Perfectly preserved after lying in earth for centuries. But despite its perfect condition, I can't tell you a damn thing about it. Not even if it was a man or a woman. That was part of the deal they made with the Elder Things so long ago. They traded their identity to ensure the prosperity of our family. Burying their corpse here made the cemetery hollowed to the Elder Things. It's why there are no names on the graves anymore. The Wisps stole them, desperate for any semblance of humanity. It's why this place is so hard for most people to perceive, let alone remember. Listen to me. You're not thinking clearly. 
Those things are just oxidizing gases from the graves. I choked out, not believing it myself. Let's just get in my car and leave. And you'll see we'll be fine. Do not leave that ring until they're gone, he ordered, the wisps slowly but steadily drawing nearer. I have to do this. Part of my ancestors' deal with the Elder Things was that each of their direct descendants would sacrifice themselves as well eventually. And every one of us who broke that pact brought ever-increasing misfortune upon us until there was just me. I... Thank you. I thought this place would be forgotten after I was gone. I don't know why you can see and remember it, but so long as you do, the wisps won't be able to steal its identity completely. So long as you remember me, they won't be able to steal mine. And... You did make my last month just a little more pleasant. Thank you. The wisps were all around him now, spitting in a languid vortex, nipping at him gently as if testing his mettle. His breath hung thick in the air. Frost began condensing on his skin and clothes, and he shivered like it was fifty degrees below zero. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a keyring, the cemetery may not be mine, but the mausoleum is, he said, throwing the keys into the ring of jack-o'-lanterns. It's yours now, and everything inside it. Before I could ask anything more, the wisps engulfed him en masse. He was smothered in the cold blue flames, but he didn't burn. Instead, each wisp seemed to have taken a bite out of him each piece turning to a dark, fluid vapor within their flames, greedily devouring him, without even leaving a skeleton behind. I, shamefully, was not a hero that night. I screamed and I cried at the sight of him being eaten alive, weeping and cowering as the wisps circled my protective ring. All I could do was pray that the jack-o'-lanterns wouldn't burn out. Since that night, I've often wondered if I should be mad at him for inviting me to watch him die like that. If he had told me ahead of time, I never would have believed him and would have insisted on being there anyway to make sure he didn't harm himself. Even afterwards, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't witnessed it myself. I never would have known what happened to him otherwise, and I am glad that he didn't have to die alone, so I think it's better this way. It's hard to stay mad at the dead, anyway. Once I knew exactly how special the cemetery really was, I followed through on my plans to live here. I gave my landlord my one month's notice, bought a camper and some solar panels, and set myself up near the woods in the back. I placed a proper font near the entrance where I throw my spare change, in the hopes of placating any elder things that might be watching. I brought a couple of people out there, just to test what the man told me. 
and all they can remember about it is that I have some trailer out in the middle of nowhere that they can never find without me. They can't even remember it's a cemetery. I spend most of my free time here now. Despite what happened, and what this place is, I still love it. And I decided it was best not to take what I found in the mausoleum out of the cemetery. It was filled with tomes, grimoires, and honest-to-God spellbooks full of occult knowledge, presumably accumulated by the man's ancestor. I've been studying them, too. I've become something of a hedge witch, you could say. And I know exactly what my first grand working is going to be. I don't think it's fair that the man had to give himself to the wisps because of a deal his ancestor made. I don't believe in the sins of the father or anything like that. I know I didn't know him that long or that well. I still don't even know his name. But by my standards, at least, what we shared was fairly intimate. He was my friend, and I want to do more than just remember him. I plan to take his spirit back from the wisps and make him my familiar. That's why, this Halloween, I'll be throwing another party. This time, one wicked enough to wake the dead. I hope you enjoyed Hallowed Ground as written by the Vespers Bell and performed by Heather Thomas. Thank you for listening and for joining us tonight for this episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course... Subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Otis Chari, and it's been a pleasure. Don't forget, you can find more of me and hundreds of episodes full of terrifying tales at the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast. Available wherever podcasts can be found or at simplyscarypodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to make sure you never miss a new release. Thanks for your support. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. 
Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.